I'm Marek and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. Today I want to think about what we can all do to develop our careers. And I'm going to suggest seven things that I think we could all instantly do right now. We can make a decision that can deepen, can enhance, can extend what we can do, our potential, and enable us to do more and better and enjoy what we do more as a result. Uh, What are you doing to nurture your career? What are you doing to enable those you manage to nurture their careers? Uh, And uh, I think if you're like me, this is probably a question that you don't ask yourself other than in an annual performance review. Uh, And uh, as a result, it's something that tends to be at the bottom of the pile. So yeah, I know that I should probably go and um, go on that particular course. I need to learn certain new things. There are limitations that I keep hitting up against, but I just don't have time to deal with those because the day job is just so pressured. There are so many other things that I've got to do. And uh, like everything else uh, in the, in this podcast, uh, I'm going to try and go as deep as I can with this because I believe that uh, when we realise how important this is and this then becomes a priority, something that emerges at that intersection between who we are as researchers and our values, then all of a sudden it may become a lot easier to do some of these things. Uh, and the things I'm going to suggest, I'm going to suggest a fairly straightforward, uh, I think there's at least three or four that most of you would be able to do pretty much instantly if you want. So easy things, but ideally things that you want to do. So uh, partly the the reason that I'm doing this today and this has been stimulated is that uh, I was challenged when I read that uh, just over a month ago, uh, there has been a new researcher development concordat agreed by VTI. Uh, This is something that supersedes uh, a similar concordat that was signed in 2008. Uh, The new concordat has been signed by all (coughs) of the UK's major research funders, and there is a growing list of university signatories, and it says that researchers across the board uh, should get a minimum of 10 days of continuing professional development per year. And it places the responsibility on to the principal investigators, PIs um, uh, and or line managers, if uh, that's how things work in your discipline, to ensure that the researcher actually gets those 10 days. So uh, what are you doing if you are a line manager of some staff, if you are a PI, to make sure that your staff uh, don't just tick a few boxes in your annual review, but yeah, I'm looking at something substantive now, 10 days worth of development per year. Uh, And I think uh, I look at my own practice and I see that I am already falling short on this. Yes, it's a question I always ask annually. Uh, And for a lot of staff, I ask uh, in the intervening period, and we try and adapt and uh, identify things as we go. But in terms of an expectation of 10 days, trying to save to make 10 days worth of time per year for this for all of my staff, yeah, I don't think that I'm anywhere near that. Uh, And that, of course, is uh, is a problem. Uh, Now, it's not just a problem because uh, my university might sign a concordat. Uh, and Newcastle hasn't yet signed this concordat. Uh, But it's because actually when you think about that, that is a reasonable request. Uh, And if I care about my staff, uh, then on a moral basis, whether or not there's anything to make me do this, this is something that, that I should, in theory, be doing. 
Um, and I'm going to have to think creatively. I'm going to have to think about how I make the time. In some cases, how I'm going to fund this. How, can my grant uh, afford it if I'm a PI? If I haven't got a grant or my grant can't afford it, how else am I going to afford to send people on these courses if that's what they want to, to do? Uh, if you are an early career researcher, then uh, I'd like to embolden you uh, to, to say, well, you know what, this maybe isn't a right that is set in stone that I should demand, but actually this is a reasonable ballpark figure for the level of continuing professional development that I should in theory be able to ask for, even if I can't expect it. Uh, and let's just raise that bar rather than uh, kind of go to one conference per year. Uh, actually pushing that further and, and really asking for something a bit more and seeing if that also helps uh, your PI and line manager come into line with what might be something that the university ends up uh, uh, signing ultimately. Um, so, so in this podcast, I want to, I'm going to have a look quickly at the, the Concordat a bit more, but I want to have a think about this from these two perspectives. What can I do myself? What are the kind of things I could ask my line manager for? Or I could simply ask myself for, because a lot of these things, they're just things that I need to go and do. Uh, and I can make the time, uh, I can still meet all of my deadlines and targets and all the rest of it. I just need to make the time to, to make this happen. And, uh, and and I think that when, when you start asking yourself these questions, whether it's um, what I do uh, for myself or what I do for my colleagues, uh, if you're like me, you'll find that you're wanting. And the reason that you're wanting is that you're making a bunch of excuses. So what are your excuses? What are the things that, uh, that mean that, yeah, I, I don't do this? Well, um, first of all, from the perspective of a PI or a line manager, well, my staff aren't asking for it. So if they're not asking, then they must be happy. They must have everything they need. And yet I ask once a year in uh, a CPD, sorry, in, uh, in a, uh, an annual appraisal. Um, but, but actually, the expectation is not there that I'm going to ask a lot of stuff. Uh, and we're not creating those expectations. And so, yeah, I tick some boxes. Yes, I've done a few courses. Great. Job done. I'm not actually pushing. Um, do you need more? What more could you do? Uh, and actually expecting that you're going to do something in the region of 10 days. Um, and what, what more could I be doing? So, yeah, just because nobody's asking doesn't necessarily mean that they don't need. And some people, of course, will ask lots, whilst others will very rarely actually ask for any form of favour, um, uh, even if, although this shouldn't even be seen as a favour, uh, but they're just going to keep quiet. So uh, yeah, that's not a good enough excuse, I would argue. And we need to be proactively seeking out what we can do to help. But I think probably the bigger problem is us. Uh, whether we are a PI or a line manager, we have needs as well. We have professional development needs. Uh, and when was the last time you went on a course? When was the last time you went to a conference just to learn, not to present? Uh, and I'm going to come up with a bunch of uh, other less obvious things in, in a moment. Um, uh, and, and I think that most of us will realise, yeah, actually, there's a whole load of things I've been sitting on that I could really do with that would be a nice to have. Uh, and even if, uh, yeah, I'm an early career researcher, yeah, there might be a whole load of very obvious things, but why is it that I'm not asking? Why is it that I'm not making time for these things? Well, I'm too busy. I've got so many other targets, so many other things I've got to get done, uh, and they are more important. Uh, and I think the problem is that your day-to-day, -day, uh, you've got a bunch of important things, but they're also urgent. And your own development is, by definition, not urgent. Uh, unless there's a task that you've got to get done and you need a skill to complete that task and that task has a deadline. Generally speaking, there is no deadline on our own development. But if year after year goes by and you're never moving forward, you're not keeping up with the latest methods, techniques, 
uh, theories, ways of doing things, then gradually you realize that you get the sense that you're stagnating, that you're going to conferences and everyone has moved on, that you're talking to colleagues and they're using things that you can't do and you feel like you're a step behind constantly. Uh, and so I would argue that this is something that we have to think about that has to be important. And so for me, uh, drawing on the stuff that I've done with the productive researcher, I, I always ask myself, well, how might this fit into my identity as, uh, as a researcher? So I am a researcher uh, who is, is on that cutting edge. Uh, for me, I'm not just a, a pedestrian researcher who does consultancy type mode stuff that is fairly low level. I have an identity that, that is above average, that is on the cutting edge, that does stuff that, that makes a difference, that moves my discipline forward. That's the kind of researcher I am. Uh, and if that is the case, then perhaps I need some skills that will enable me to remain on that cutting edge for example. What kind of researcher are you and what kind of skills does that require? Uh, perhaps my identity is as an impactful researcher. So I don't really care so much if I'm on the cutting edge, <clears throat> as long as I'm doing rigorous research. Uh, but what I care about is my identity as a researcher who makes a difference. And now, actually, what are the skills I need to be able to engage more effectively with the media, for example, to not turn down the next media interview because I'm terrified of it? Uh, what are the skills I need to start harnessing the power of social media, which is something that I've just never gone near? Uh, or what other things are there that might enable me to become a more impactful researcher and really fulfill that identity? And then what are the values? <clears throat> so perhaps I might pair um, with that I desire to be on the cutting edge, um, uh, a sense of integrity, that what I do as a researcher has really deep integrity. So I, I value reliability, accuracy. Uh, and actually, I know that there are methods out there now that are more reliable, that are more accurate than what I do at the moment. Uh, I need to get with those methods. I need to understand that stuff. I, I need to be sure that I'm not missing a trick here. Uh, and I put that, uh, that identity as a cutting edge researcher together with that value of integrity. And you know what? That uh, professional development need is, of course, a huge priority. I need to make this happen. I'm making a plan today as I listen to this podcast. I'm going to do one of these seven things Mark suggests in a moment. Uh, and I'm going to make a plan to do it next month. Uh, and this is the date I'm going to do it. I'm blocking out my day or whatever it is. Great. Of course, an impactful researcher. Uh, great, that's my identity. Uh, but what are the values that, that drive me to this? Why is it that, that I see myself as an impactful researcher? And now this is about altruism. This is about helping the poor, helping those who are less fortunate than myself. Perhaps this is about justice, about making wrongs right. Uh, and I think about those values and I understand, I recognise where they come from and the depths that they come from. And now, yeah, I put that together with my identity as an impactful researcher and I'm making a date with myself. I'm going to do one of these, one of these things. So um, I'm going to come uh, in a second onto this very briefly, uh, the Concordat, just so you know where this is coming from, what might be coming down the road to you. It states that institutions who sign up are committed to, and I quote, provide opportunities, structured support, encouragement, and time for researchers to engage in a minimum of, and it's a minimum of 10 days professional development pro rata per year, recognising that researchers will pursue careers across a wide range of employment sectors. 
And under this uh, Concordat, funders must now incorporate specific professional development requirements in relevant funding, funding calls and policies, including the requirement for 10 days professional development for researchers employed on the projects that they fund. So expect to see this coming out in funding calls in the next few months in the UK. Um, uh, and the, I think uh, then just having a look at uh, what is happening, I think a lot of institutions are, of course, providing lots of career development opportunities for researchers. And of course, this Concordat formalises that. And I think that's the, the easy win and uh, where this then becomes very easy for an institution to say, yeah, we sign up for this. Look at our incredible CBD programme that we offer all of our researchers. It's one thing, though, uh, I would argue to have the opportunity. It's quite another to make sure that the researchers who need it are actually availing themselves of those opportunities and certainly doing that to the level required. And as you'll see in a moment, I think it goes way beyond just the formal CBD courses that, uh, that our universities have. Uh, so having a look at this at the moment, I'll put a link in the show notes to this. Uh, we have four universities signed. Um, there was one last month, we're up to four this month. It's Brunel, Queen Margaret, Queen Margaret Reading and York St. John, uh, looking at uh, former concordats that Vitae have negotiated and given the buy-in of funders and the likelihood that this is going to get integrated into funding calls, I expect that that will snowball very rapidly. Um, of course, who knows? So what are the options, these uh, these seven things? So a couple of these are things I've talked about, very obvious things, um, but I'll go into some less obvious things. And in each case, I'm going to think about this both from the perspective of you as a, uh, an early career researcher uh, or just me. I'm a researcher. I'm a senior in my career. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I need development as well. And secondly, what we can do in terms of encouraging our staff and those uh, that we manage. So the, the first is training. And, uh, and the obvious one here is CPD. So uh, in our annual appraisals, we ask, what training have you done? And we might uh, look through the options of what is available in our university. And most universities have got some very good uh, offerings. Great, uh, easy done. But uh, what about the things that are not offered within your university? or where the feedback is not good uh, from those who've been on that course in your university and you want to go beyond, you want to go outside. Well, the, the easiest way to do that, which is usually the most cost-effective, is to do that via some kind of online training. Um, and uh, and I would say, look, just because it's not within your institution, uh, that should not limit what you do. What we want to do is we want to be operating competitively on a global stage. And if we don't think that there is the relevant course or a course to the relevant standard in our university, and we want to be operating at that standard, then of course we look beyond. We don't limit ourselves to what is within our institution. And have a look at what might be there in terms of online training and have a look at what might be there in terms of face-to-face -face training, although you're going to have to fund the travel as well as the course fee to, to, make, that, uh, to make that happen. And long-term, think about then going, coming back, getting feedback, and talking to the people who run your own internal programs to say, look, can we do something like this in future? And very often what they will then do is they will then uh, actually uh, pay for that external funder to come in and do that training for you if there are enough other people like you who say, yeah, that's a complete different course that's way way better or that's something that just is not being offered at the moment great 
so uh, do that with your staff, but do it with yourself. Uh, when was the last time you looked through the offering yourself? And if you haven't got time to do that, just have a look through with one of your staff and ask yourself the question as you're looking through that catalogue. Hmm, should I be doing any of this stuff as well? You don't need to talk about this, uh, voice it, but just internally ask yourself, hmm, yeah, take a little note here. Maybe I'm going to do some of this too. Now, uh, you're going to have to get creative with how you fund this stuff. So um, <coughs> uh, for me, if this is a, uh, a project um, uh, that I'm leading, then I'm going to look, first of all, can I draw on my project account? Now, uh, I've yet to be proactive enough to actually build this into my grants proposals. And uh, I'm taking a mental note here. Next proposal I put in, uh, can I actually put in a budget line for some staff development? Uh, let's just not assume that it's all going to be in-house. Let's put in a budget line for this. And actually, I'm going to expect that the funders are going to expect this, given the concordat, and uh, and I'm not going to get any raised eyebrows from doing that. At the moment, I'm just having a look and I'm saying, right, can I... Uh, look at my different budgets and yeah it looks like we're underspending on travel at the moment and yeah we can easily justify now putting this in um, uh, based on uh, what looks like will be an underspend on a particular budget line fantastic otherwise i'm looking have i got some kind of personal development uh, funds so uh, in russell group universities in particular at least in my own experience that's what, uh, the only place i've had this i get 500 pounds per year uh, in Newcastle um, for my own staff development. Um, and yeah, am I just going to spend that on going to one conference? Or might I be able to spend that uh, on uh, going to a few different online courses, for example, and get better value for money? Uh, or if I don't need that because my projects are going to fund that, then can I use that now to fund my postdocs or PhD students to go on to something instead? Great. And if not, then you're looking for some kind of creative way of doing this. And I will say to, to you, in, uh, in my own early career days, there have been a number of times where I've decided I need something. I can't get my university to pay for this, but I am going to invest in this myself. And within reason, if you can afford it, and uh, if you can negotiate with your partner, this is a good way of spending money. Uh, you can justify that as, this as an investment in your career. Um, and so for me, this has been in particular around coaching and stuff on a more kind of psychological level that is going to enable me to raise my game, uh, especially around leadership and things like that. Uh, if you can't get the level of support you want in your university, then go externally and see this as an investment. Because you know what? Long term, there's a good chance that helps get you to uh, a promotion, which then in the long term increases your earning potential. So I can justify this now in a conversation with my spouse that, yeah, uh, this might seem like a bit of a challenge, uh, given that we want to save up for X or Y, but this is how I'm going to justify this. What do you say? Uh, and maybe there's something that he or she might be able to do in a similar vein. And actually, yeah, our careers are important and there are things that we're never going to get through our employer. Um, uh, and just think about what you do in terms of professional subscriptions, uh, magazine subscriptions, things like this already. It's not maybe as big a step as, uh, as you might expect. Uh, second thing then is going to be conferences and workshops. Again, very obvious, uh, but, uh, but ask yourself now, uh, what are the things that you could do as a punter? Uh, and certainly I've got to a point in my career stage where I feel like I can only ever justify going to a conference if I am presenting. 
Um, and fair enough. Uh, let's uh, let's put something in uh, at, at minimum as a as a poster that then justifies using university funding for this. But uh, but rather than just doing this in terms of the prestige of the conference and where I can get my my stuff out um, and visible and known. Let's also think about um, some conferences that are actually things that perhaps are now slightly outside my discipline. This is now more workshop mode rather than conference mode um, and something where I'm going to learn a bunch of new stuff. Uh, maybe my work isn't that relevant to them and hence this is not great exposure, hence I can't even get a poster or uh, an oral uh, submission accepted. But this is going to be really fascinating for me. I'm going to learn new things. I'm going to be exposed to new people, meet people that I could build collaborations with. And ask yourself, when was the last time you went to something like that? Uh, and of course, it can be hugely stimulating, thinking out of the box, being challenged, uh, uh, but without the pressure of having to stand up and answer questions to a group of people like this. Um, uh, so have a think um, beyond the, the norm. Uh, and again, ask yourself, what can you do to enable your colleagues? Uh, and so I've got a, a conference budget, uh, but does that mean that I as the PI go around and talk at the end of my project all about uh, our project? Or do I actually now divide this up and say, well, maybe my postdoc goes and does something early doors in more exploratory mode, finding out some new things? Or maybe actually I share this and me and my postdoc now are going uh, at the end of the project, sharing that glory, uh, or midway through doing something that is more in development mode as well. Now, the third of these is going to be <coughs> shadowing. And uh, of course, you've got these formal shadowing opportunities that I'd like you to have a think about. Um, Google these. Uh, being on social media is a great way of finding out about these kinds of opportunities. Um, so there, there could be a bunch of things out there that you're just not aware of. So make, make yourself aware. Go and talk to uh, people in your funding offices. Uh, they're often the people who find out about these because funders often offer, uh, offer these shadowing schemes. Find out what's available. And you now might, if you want to get into policy work, be able to shadow a policymaker or a civil servant. Um, and these can be really invaluable. Uh, professional bodies are another place of, uh, of great opportunities for, for shadowing. But I want to, again, to try and think out of the box a little bit on this and just ask yourself what you can do in terms of informal shadowing opportunities, something that you could do right now today. Uh, and first of all, I want you to think about what opportunities you could offer to someone else to shadow you. What are the skills you've got? Um, and in particular, things that you've honed through years of experience that are the kind of the art of what you do, rather than the kind of thing that you might train someone up in. <clears throat> and, and ask yourself whether there is now um, an opportunity for a more junior member of staff to shadow you. For example, the most common one I see is in your next grant um, uh, application. And so uh, if you are kind of early to mid-career, then uh, you're and you're now uh, doing a grant application as PI, and you've got a few under your belt now, small grants as principal investigator. Maybe you want to uh, shadow, give someone an opportunity to shadow you who is earlier career than you, who has not yet got anything as PI. 
Uh, and the great thing about this now is that you're not that far ahead in terms of your career with them, so you're relatable, and you're applying for things um, that are in that kind of small to mid scale that are achievable by that person. This is the kind of stuff they're targeting that they should be PI on as well. Uh, and whilst you might think, well, yeah, but I'm just me, and look, I've just got two or three, and they're quite small fry, uh, actually, that is a huge opportunity for someone else who has not even got one under their belt yet. So realise what you've got uh, and the opportunity for them to shadow you. Even if you're not successful, they will still learn incredible things from you. Uh, and at the same time, ask yourself, well, what might I be headed towards? Maybe not yet, but two, three years from now. And might I be able to approach someone else to ask them if I could shadow them in their next grant? So uh, this may now be people who are applying for the multi-million pounds proposals. And that's just pie in the sky for me. I mean, I'm not even a prof yet. I mean, I've, uh, I've not even broken the one million pound um, barrier yet. Um, but you know what? Uh, actually, I could see this being me in three or four years from now. Perhaps that should in theory be where I'm at. So next um, time I'm doing my professional review, I'm going to ask my line manager, might I be able to, to, to shadow you? Or might you be able to recommend someone that you think uh, I might be able to do this with and could you put me in touch and set something up for me? And now uh, you're shadowing them. Uh, and so this means that you're getting copied into all the group emails. You're coming along to all of the, the group meetings. Uh, you're observing, you're taking notes. And crucially, you're having regular meetings with the PI to break down. So what was all that stuff that I saw in the email last week? And uh, and actually, why did you make that decision in the, in the last meeting that we saw, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, and you're learning. Fantastic. So we can all do this. We can all offer and we can all ask, uh, but we very rarely think to either offer or ask. And shadowing can be a, an incredibly powerful way of learning the art of things like grants writing, which are, I would argue, very often subjective. It's about what is that cutting edge? What is perceived to be academically significant and original in your discipline? Uh, and there are no very concrete right answers. The uh, fourth of the things I'm going to suggest now is another thing you might not think about, and it is teaching. Uh, now, the obvious one for this is that actually, uh, if uh, you are uh, line managing postdocs, then uh, ask yourself uh, whether there are teaching opportunities that are not going to take huge amounts of time, uh, that would be an opportunity for them to build their CV, especially if this is a postdoc who is thinking about going into academia. Because by the time you're applying for a lectureship, then you're going to need some teaching on your CV. And why not start now? Yeah, it's their first postdoc position. And you're thinking, well, surely they're not going to go straight from this into a lectureship. Well, who knows? Maybe it happens on a surprisingly uh, regular basis. And if not, uh, then it's now years worth of teaching experience. And at minimum, I'm looking at uh, making sure that I'm giving each of my postdocs uh, an opportunity, which they can say no to, for at least one lecture linked to their PhD and or their project. So they're not having to do loads and loads of research and thinking around this. This is home territory where they're confident. And this is not dumping them in at the deep end. This is now having a chat with them, uh, giving them an opportunity to come to one of my lectures, having a chat after the lecture over coffee, uh, getting, giving them a chance to answer questions. 
um, uh, now helping them prepare the material. So they go, they prepare a draft, they send it to you. What do you think of that? And um, and then after that, uh, debriefing. How did that go? What could you have done better? What did you love most about what they did? What can they build on? Brilliant. Um, so so teaching, great, but uh, but not just um, palming off your teaching on someone else, uh, ideally. <laughs> uh, but then as the PI, the line manager, the more senior member of staff, have a think about what you can do in terms of teaching that might actually be professional development for you. Uh, so uh, my next uh, lecture is uh, I've been asked to do an entire afternoon on qualitative methods um, for a colleague. In fact, she's one of my PhD students. She's part time. Um, and um, and yet yeah, she needs uh, to be doing less teaching so she can focus more on her PhD. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, this is an opportunity for me to help and also do some relevant teaching that I know something about. But uh, I've done this in, yeah, two-hour lecture segments, typically. Uh, a whole afternoon, I'm thinking, you know what, I could do something more workshop-based. We could try some things out. Uh, and I'm asking myself, actually, what could I do that would stretch me? So it's not going to be just huh, digging out what I did last year, um, but taking me further. And so I'm asking myself, what have I learned methodologically over the last year? And how might I formalize that and, uh, and teach that to my students? And of course, the problem is that what you're learning as an academic, certainly as a senior academic, is often very high level stuff. So is there something I could bring in? And actually, for me, this has been a stuff, that, a bunch of stuff I've been learning with a co-author, Katie Moon from um, University of Sydney, I believe. Um, certainly, somewhere in Australia. Katie Moon, you can Google her, um, and she's written some really great articles um, about uh, social science for natural scientists. Uh, but essentially, what she's doing is is research, philosophy, uh, ontology, and epistemology, all that kind of stuff. And so I've been uh, studying her work and working with her, learning on the job with her, writing with her, uh, and going deeper than I've ever gone before on research philosophy. Uh, and so I'm asking myself, how could I now put what I've learned into a lecture and how might that then help solidify this in ways that means that now I can just talk about this off path? Uh, without having to go back to any notes or remember any terminology uh, or anything like that. And actually, I drew a, I drew a, a diagram on the board um, or I wrote it, I, I put it into my PowerPoint. And now that is in my mind and I can call this to consciousness. Now, as I'm designing a project on a hoof um, uh, in an inception meeting where we've discovered that there's a, a missing part of our research design, for example. Great. Uh, number four on my list is coaching and mentoring, and um, uh, you've already seen some of this uh, already in what I've talked about with shadowing and teaching. But uh, this is now taking this a step deeper. So uh, this is asking yourself, how might I not just supervise and manage my staff, but how might I be able to coach or mentor my staff? And I would argue that that is a qualitatively different thing. So now, rather than just helping people organise their time and manage their time and manage um, reaching targets, etc., I'm asking them now, what are their career aspirations? Where do they want to go in the deepest sense uh, in terms of their career, their lives? And how can I enable them to be the best researchers that they can be, to be the best people they can be, to achieve their goals, their aspirations, be inspired, be enriched? So that, that for me is, is, is how I would describe the difference. 
Um, and a mentor, by definition, is simply someone who is at least one step ahead of you on any given pathway. Uh, and you may have multiple different pathways in your career. So I want a teaching mentor and a researcher uh, mentor. Uh, maybe I want a, a life mentor and a work mentor. Uh, so identify what are the different pathways that you're trying to push and get better at. And then ask yourself, who might be that one person who is one step ahead of you that you can talk to and trust and who might help? Um, and, uh, and ask yourself whether you might be that person for someone else. Uh, now, uh, I think there are some risks associated with doing this with staff that you manage because there is uh, an innate power dynamic and it's not always appropriate. So depending on who you are, who they are, and how strong that power dynamic is, it may not be appropriate even to offer this um, in terms of you, in which case you're asking them if there's someone else they might be able to reach out to. Um, uh, but in some cases it works. And so in, 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 any, in any mentoring relationship, I would suggest start with an initial session, scope out what you want to achieve, scope out how many sessions. So I would normally fix six sessions over six months or six weeks. Uh, what are you going to achieve by then? We'll review it at the end. Job done. Fantastic. And if you want, you can then extend for a further three. But yeah, it's, it's fixed. Um, it's, it's scoped out. Um, it's defined. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, try and help people to to actually reach out to make that happen. And maybe you're now brokering that relationship, asking someone on, beh on the behalf, uh, going for coffee to introduce them to each other, to explore that opportunity with them, etc. Uh, so, uh, so, so make those opportunities happen for your staff, but also ask yourself um, who who that might that might be. Uh, so for me, I've got uh, I think two two mentors. So one um, uh, for me, I, I always like to have a kind of a spiritual mentor. Um, and to be honest, uh, a lot of these people are are people whose books I listen to on on Audible, um, or people who I listen to uh, in terms of podcasts, etc. Um, uh, in terms of your your own um, emotional, spiritual, psychological walk, whatever it is. Um, uh, very often, it's, it's hard to find people that uh, that, that can uh, can be a few steps ahead of you in terms of your own social networks, and maybe you feel a bit embarrassed about that. So, yeah, you can shortcut that by listening to someone on a podcast on a regular basis, or just listening to all of their books over the course of years, for example. Um, I've got a friend that, that I connect with uh, about once a month, um, who I, I think is a step ahead of me in a few ways uh, in terms of his spiritual walk. I think I'm probably a step ahead of him in a few ways. So we learn from each other, which is always uh, always a good thing. Um, uh, but whether this is a, a friend, whether this is someone um, kind of outside your network, uh, ask yourself uh, beyond work, I would suggest, because it is all connected. And as we become psychologi psychologically more sorted, more resilient, um, uh, then, of course, we, uh, we we do better in our work. We deal with failure better. We we mentor our colleagues better. Um, uh, we, we are ne less needy um, in terms of what we get, in terms of external validation from our work. Uh, and of course, uh, one option to this is to get yourself a counsellor. Um, so I have someone that I meet every two weeks, and strictly speaking, they are a counsellor. Um, but I very rarely talk about my problems, my issues. This is about what I want to, to be, where I want to go, how I'm going to achieve things, overcome barriers. Um, and, and it's a safety net if there are challenges. Um, but for me, I invest heavily in my psychological well-being. Uh, because I believe that that is the secret to being sorted enough to achieve the stuff that I want in my career as well. Um, it, it's all connected. 
But then, uh, in terms of my 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 academic career, uh, I think that the the most constant mentor I've got is um, someone called Yoan Fazy. Um, he's a professor at uh, University of York. And we don't meet up with each other very often. Sometimes it's once a year. But when we do, we check in at a level which is way, way deeper than with anyone else. So he studies transformations, um, and these are societal transformations. But of course, he looks at personal psychological transformation as well. And so there's a very deeply kind of connected conversation that I can have with him that brings us all together. Uh, and because ultimately he's going the same path as me. Uh, yeah, he's an academic, but he does it because he wants to make a difference. And yeah, he's now a Russell Group prof. He's got the same pressures, the same expectations on his shoulders. How are you dealing with that, Ewan? What are you doing? Um, and, and, and we, again, each learn from each other, but I always come away feeling like, you know what? He's a step ahead and there's something I could do differently. Wow. Who are those kind of people for you? Uh, and think deeply, think hard um, and, and identify them and reach out, even if it's just once a year. Go for dinner, uh, inspire yourself, uh, and I'm sure you will give something to them at the same time. Uh, two left. Um, so this next one is just um, to learn on the job, teach yourself something. Uh, and there are so many things we could just learn. So what are all those annoying things that I can't do? Uh, and could you just decide, right, actually, I'm going to teach myself that thing. Now, the secret of this is that these are things that you will probably have annoyed yourself with for years. Uh, so uh, I'm going to give you um, two things I still have not cracked <laughs> that have just pissed me off for years. One is that um, I, I started academia long enough ago that uh, EndNote and all of this reference bibliography management software was kind of not a thing. And I've done it manually ever since. And every time I submit a manuscript or resubmit a manuscript to a new journal, I just tear my hair out. Uh, and all my colleagues say, Mark, just get a grip and put everything into one of these things, learn how to do it. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, is some kind of qualitative um, uh, software, NVivo or something like that. And I still do it all by hand. I, I do it on Excel, so it's not quite as bad as the original kind of cutting things up on bits of paper and putting them into envelopes. <laughs> but it's not much better, to be honest. Um, and every time I'm doing qualitative analysis, I'm just like, you know what, I just need to learn how to use this, get one of my postdocs to teach me for crying out loud, Mark. And I've still not done it. Um, uh, and, and then there's a whole load of things on, well, you know, I, I decide I want to go from my podcast into YouTube. How do I become a YouTuber? Uh, I want to learn how I could automate a task such as uh, building a pathway to impact. Um, how would I build an automated pathway to impact build? I've got no idea where I'd even start with that. Um, and interestingly, I've given you four things that I've wanted to crack for a long time. Um, and I've cracked the last two. And the reason is that I was able to see instantly why those two things are priorities. So let's go back to what I said earlier on because it's important, and you're already maybe thinking, oh, great idea, but huh, I'll never do that. Um, why is it a priority? How does this connect to my identity as a researcher? And of course, as you know, for me, I, my identity as a researcher is someone who is impactful. What are my values? Uh, I want to help others uh, through my research. Put that together, and yeah, I'm still struggling to help myself to learn EndNote and NVivo. 
But actually, you know what, I can become a more impactful researcher and help thousands of people if I can learn how to become a YouTuber and if I can learn how to build an automatic pathway to impact builder, which I've done in both cases. <laughs> Maybe not great, but I've done it well enough. Uh, and I just set myself a target and I said, right, um, with the, uh, the, 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 the pathway to impact one, that was the longest one. That turned out to be really challenging. Uh, and it took six months. And I just decided, right, um, every week I've got uh, half an hour, maybe three quarters of an hour while I wait for my daughter during her swimming lesson. Uh, and I use that time at the moment to just mop up emails at the end of my week, um, uh, maybe to make a phone call. And wherever I can now, I'm going to make a commitment that that half an hour or three quarters of an hour is sacrosanct. I am saving that to learn how to do this. And so for the first three months, it was trial and error. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. I've tried that. No, that's too expensive. No, that doesn't work. And I just kept going until I worked out how to do this and I learned myself. And I can't code. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty useless with a load of technologies, but I ultimately managed to do this because I just stuck at this by using that one little bit of time. Uh, and I was motivated, which is why I did it. Um, and of course, actually, now the choice of uh, bumping up emails or doing something that will take me closer to my most important priorities. Of course, I'm going to do this. Yeah, every now and then I had to make a phone call. I had to deal with a really important set of emails I know I'd missed. But yeah, by and large, I did it. And then finally, uh, I'm going to give you one final thing we could all instantly do. And I'm going to confess to you that I am not yet doing this and I've not done this. Um, so the rest of these I've done to some shape or, or form. Uh, this is one I failed on. So maybe you can do better than me on this because I still think this is a great idea and it's something we should surely be able to do. And it is thinking days. So I've talked about this in various different forms and this could just be a thinking lunch. And I do do that. So I'm going to take a pick at lunch and I'm going to go, going to go for a walk. I'm going to take a whole hour to eat my lunch in a beautiful place and think. Um, and of course you can do that in an hour. But actually, what about a whole thinking day? So uh, we've got to a point in our qualitative analysis where this is theory building. Uh, I'm trying to come up with that new research proposal, but it kind of feels quite incremental. Uh, and I'm looking for that step change, that idea that will be truly original. What is that thing? And, uh, and actually, why is it that I can't just make myself a day? I'm going to take a day and I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to climb a hill, for example. I don't know. But I'm going to do that in my work time. And the whole, the sole purpose of this is thinking. I'm going to crack that challenge. Uh, that's that, that really difficult thing I've been thinking about, uh, but haven't been really been able to solve yet. And you've got all number, all, all manner of excuses, but I can potentially reserve a day for writing. I can reserve a day for proposal writing or, or paper writing. Uh, but actually, I know that if I've not done the thinking, then I'm not going to be able to write something that is original or significant. So why can't I actually reserve a day? And you know what? Maybe I can't manage to quite get myself here. But what about if I were to suggest to one of my postdocs that they take a day? One day next week, I'd like to set you a task. I would like you to come up with at least one new way of solving this problem. And I would like you to do that by taking a day, not a day off, a day of thinking. Go and do something that you enjoy doing that will enable you to think effectively and see what comes back. 
it seems a bit radical, uh, but uh, but you know what? Uh, well, let's start how we mean to go on and enable our colleagues to do that. And then maybe they learn that, you know what, thinking days are legitimate. Thinking days are useful. Thinking days help me actually get to the top of my game. Uh, and maybe then we can copy our colleagues and uh, do what we preach <laughs> and get a thinking day as well. That's my take home. Uh, can I make myself a thinking day? So ask yourself, what are you going to do? Uh, uh, come up with one of these things. I'm going to go and uh, do some new training uh, or enable one of my colleagues to go and do something perhaps beyond just the CPD courses that I've got uh, on offer. I'm going to go to a conference that is kind of for me, not just to present my work or maybe more workshop mode, or I'm going to enable one of my colleagues to do that. I'm going to ask to shadow someone or offer someone something that they can shadow from me. I'm going to enable my postdocs to do some teaching, but I'm going to give them some support to do that rather than just palming off my teaching. And I'm going to think about how I can uh, learn more, codify, uh, extend what I've learned in the last year. Next time I teach a course that, rather than just regurgitating what I did last year, I'm going to uh, coach or mentor my colleagues uh, and offer myself as a mentor. And I'm going to try and, uh, and find someone to mentor me. I'm going to ask myself, uh, what is it that is stopping me from learning the things that I know I could in theory easily learn? And I'm going to make time to learn the things that actually are priorities for me. And I'm going to take time, time away to think. Uh, uh, if not a day, then at least uh, a nice lunch break. Uh, just to think. No emails, no phone. I'm just thinking. And I would argue that at least one of these things is something that is immediately accessible to all of us. Uh, and I would suggest um, uh, if we are people who manage others to us and to the colleagues we manage. And if you're early career, these are things that you can do. But I would argue, ask yourself as an early career researcher, are there things where you are one step ahead of your early career colleagues where you can help them as well? And together now we can create a more humane, more empathic economy that enables us to each learn with each other and give each other a step up.